are listening to the sermon audio from Renaissance Church. We pray this message equips you to be formed into the image of Christ as you grow in your love of God, and it fuels you to love your neighbor as yourself. We are convinced that while this sermon audio is beneficial, this should only be supplemental and not replace local church involvement, the pastor God has put over your life, or your commitment to gather in person with other believers to make more disciples for the fame of Jesus. Peace be with you. Welcome. Would you stand for the reading of God's word? For those of you who don't know me, my name is Rob, and I'm one of the elders here on staff at Renaissance Church, and I'm so glad to be gathering with you here on the the first Sunday of this new year. We are starting our new series uh, in the book of Ephesians, and to prep for that that series, uh, we're actually going to backtrack a little bit, and we're going to be in the book of Acts, chapter 20. So if you have um, your Bibles with you, I want you to open them up. Um, to Acts chapter 20, verses 17, all the way through 38. we got quite a bit to read this morning, so don't lock those knees so nobody passes out as we read this uh, long passage this morning. So here, here we are, Acts chapter 20, verses 17, all the way through 38. My friends, my brothers and sisters, hear the word of the Lord. Now from Miletus... He, that is Paul, sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility, with tears, and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and to the Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore... I testify to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all of you. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he had obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease, night or day, to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. 
You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I've shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus. How he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. This is the word of the Lord. Let's thank him through prayer. Father, we thank you for this record that our brother Luke has kept for us. That we get to know the story of your gospel and how it spread across the known world. And Father, as we prepare to see how this affected the church in Ephesus, may we see how it might affect us here in Pittsburgh. Spirit of the living God, would you fall fresh on us this morning? Would you fall fresh on me so I might speak clearly and not just speak truth, but speak truth in love, truth with grace. And Father, I pray that we can all experience this grace this morning through the preaching of your word. We ask these things knowing that you can do far more abundantly than what I'm even asking right now. It's in Christ's name we pray all these things. And all God's people said, amen. amen. You could be seated. Today we are going to begin a several month voyage through the book of Ephesians, or better yet, if we want to be to honor what it actually is, it's a letter from Paul to the church in Ephesus. But like I said earlier, before we dive into this letter, we want to take a step back and see what the culture was like in the port city known as Ephesus. Because before we figure out what this letter means to us, we have to first understand what it means to them. It wasn't a letter primarily for us, but for them, this church in Ephesus. And if we're going to figure out what it means for our everyday life, it has to be grounded in the reality of their culture and present-day Ephesus. And so in order to do that, we're going to take a trip back. We're going to take a trip back to Ephesus' past. That's our, our first point today. Ephesus past. Our second point is we're going to take a trip to Ephesus future with John in the book of Revelation, in uh, Revelation chapter 2. And then we'll take a look at Ephesus present, the introduction to Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. But I'm going to do something right now um, that, is, that might not be popular amongst y'all. I'm going to spoil the end of the story for you. I'm going to tell you what this whole letter is all about uh, from a, a quote from one of my, present, my, my favorite present-day theologians named Scotty Smith. He says this. He says, there is nothing more than the gospel, just more of the gospel. 
And this is what Paul wants the Ephesian church to know. That there is nothing more for them than the gospel of Jesus Christ, just more of the gospel for them. And it's my hope and prayer that as we dive into this book, this letter, is that you will come to see that there is nothing more than you need in this life than the gospel of Jesus Christ. You just need more of it. You need more of it. I need more of it. And so let's dive in to see this in Ephesus past, in Acts 20, Ephesus future, in Revelation 2, and then Ephesus present, in Ephesians chapter 1. Y'all ready to dive in? First point, Ephesus past. So here we are in Acts 20, verse 17. Scroll down to verse 17 with me, where Paul is calling the elders of the church to come 30 miles to him. There in Ephesus, he's saying, come down south. Come down and meet me in Miletus. And this is what he says as he's meeting with them in Miletus. He says, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility, with all tears, and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, and how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. What Paul is doing is he's telling them how he's been with them for two years, how he preached the gospel of Christ without abandon, even in the face of riots. Now, Ephesus was the epicenter of Greek and Roman worship. It's where you found all the temples. And Paul, for two years, he reasoned with the Jews that were present in their synagogues. And he also reasoned with the Greeks in the hall of Tyrannus. So much so that if we look at Acts chapter 19, he says, All the residents of Asia hear the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. All means all. <laughs> Everyone in Asia heard the gospel. And as the capital of Asia Minor, we see Ephesus in this next picture. If you're familiar uh, with uh, the Mediterranean area, so go to the zoomed out photo. That is a zoomed out photo. You have Italy over here, present day Greece, and then uh, Asia Minor right over here, which is modern day Turkey. In this area, there would be a port city right above Miletus called Ephesus. All of the Roman roads led to that port city. It was the home of about 250,000 citizens. It is this flourishing metropolitan area full of artisans, musicians, craftsmen, artists, actors, and athletes. And much of their wealth came from tourism for religious pilgrims that came to worship the god Isis and the god Serapis. And many of the folks uh, worshipped this goddess named Artemis, what you saw in our promo for the letter to Ephesus. Now, who is Artemis? Artemis was this many-breasted female goddess who was able to compel the desires of women towards men. I wonder what type of folk you found in her temple. <laughs> Young, single dudes. 
sacrificing many things to turn the affections of women towards them. Now, Paul preached the gospel so much that the artisans started hating him. Why? Because it was they were the ones who fashioned the idols of Artemis. When folks heard the good news of Christ Jesus, sales plummeted. If you look in chapter 19, we have Demetrius, a silversmith. He got all the shrine makers together, and he holds a riot. And this is what he says to all the other shrine makers. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that God's made with hands, i.e. the ones that they're making, they are not God's. Do you see what the gospel story that we need more of does to a culture? It transforms previous forms of idolatry. What is idolatry? Taking something that is created in the image of man and treating it like the image of God. And it also overthrows and dismantles injustice. Because what were those silversmiths doing? They are taking advantage of people's wants and desires, selling them idols that always overpromised and constantly underdelivered. Why? So they can take money from them for their own gain. That is the definition of injustice. Idolatry and injustice are two different sides to the same coin. And this is what the gospel does. It creates a brand new culture, a culture where it dismantles us before we ever delight in it. It's a gospel that criticizes our own idols before we ever cherish it. And Paul knows that after he sets off for Jerusalem, fierce wolves are going to come in, he says in verse 29. Fierce wolves are going to come in and try to distract the disciples from the one true gospel. And he says, I want you elders, that is the leaders of the church that he has in Miletus, to be alert. I don't want you only to watch out for the false teachers, these wolves, but keep a close watch on yourself. How? How are they to do this? Well, this is how he says in verse 32. And now I commend to you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Now notice what Paul did not tell them to do. He didn't say to get into petty little arguments with these wolves. He didn't tell them to troll them on Twitter, shaming them on social media. No, what does Paul tell them to do? Commend them to God and commit yourself to the word of grace. What is this word of grace? Paul later tells us in Ephesians chapter 1. It's the gospel of your salvation. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the gospel story. And why does he do this? Because he knows that it's only the gospel that will both guard the church and grow the church. It's only the word of grace that gives birth 
to the church and also builds up the church. And it's only this word of grace that both saves sinners, and looks what he says in verse uh, 32. It doesn't just save sinners, but the gospel also sanctifies them. Makes them more like Jesus. You know what he's saying to these Ephesian elders? There's nothing more than you need than the gospel. You just need more of it. I commend you this word of grace. So he tells them in Ephesus past. However, Ephesus future, they may have wanted something more than the gospel. Their second point, Ephesus future. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. Here we are, several decades later, and we are now on the fourth letter to the church in Ephesus. Y'all know that there's four letters written to the church in Ephesus. We have the first letter that we're going to be studying. Letters two and three were written to timid Timothy, first and second Timothy, who's a leader in Ephesus. And now we have this circulatory letter written by John. John is writing to this church that Paul planted. And he said, y'all are doing great. You are suffering well. You're facing persecution well. Those wolves that Paul told you about, you have not only guarded yourself against them, you've gotten rid of them. But you're failing, he said. You got one thing wrong. Look what he says in Revelation chapter 2, verses 4 through 5. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works that you did at first. If not, I'll come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. By all outward appearances. The church at Ephesus is killing it. And they're taking names. So what's John's problem? They're focused on the wrong works. They're in love with their own works. And not the work of Christ. Because if they were in love with the work of Christ. They would have not abandoned their first love. Which, what is love? It's not that we have loved first, but that God has loved us first. Do you see what John is saying? And this is what I want us to hear today, church. It is possible to get the right doctrine and the right deeds while dismantling loving devotion. It is possible to have the right beliefs. Oh, I believe in a God that forgives me. But the wrong behavior. You lack love that leads to forgiving others. You can have gospel conviction. But like the church in Ephesus, you can lack gospel culture. You can say that you love God, 
but you teach with an unloving tone. You can have zealous, performative religion, but you know what performance cultivates? A love of self and self-righteousness, a culture of condemnation, and not a culture of grace. John is saying you have lost the very thing that makes all other things worthwhile. You lost the love of God and your love for God. I remember when I was younger. When I was younger, uh, I was entered into many, many piano and band competitions. As I was going through all of these competitions, I would regularly get these certificates and these ribbons. I mean, you can still go back. My mom still keeps, like a good mom, she keeps all of my certificates and that piano bench. You can find them. What I started noticing is that I started losing my love for the music. And I blamed it on the competitions. I blamed it on the music. And so you know what I did? I quit. I quit piano. I quit lessons. I didn't touch a musical instrument for months. But what did I get wrong? What did I get wrong? It wasn't the the competitions that ruined my love. It wasn't the music that ruined my love. It was my posture towards the competitions. I started loving the results and stopped loving the music. And I think this is what John is saying to the church and he's saying to us. You are loving your results. You're loving the ministry that you do for God as if God actually needs you. You're in love with yourself. And John is not telling them to get rid of the works. He's instead saying, instead of working for the love and the approval of self, work from the approval that you already have in Christ Jesus. Work from that love that you originally had. Work from the love that God has already given you through Jesus. Because on that, the very survival of your church depends You've lost your first love. You see, Renaissance Church, we can plant dozens of churches. We can send out dozens of missionaries. We can care for the poor. But if we do not have love, everything that we do is worthless. Are you with me? It's worthless. And why do you think we are so susceptible to believing that what we do matters? you why it's because we keep working for results and not from results we keep working for putting ourselves in the spotlight so we will be loved not recognizing that we've already been loved in christ which develops love for god and love for others like jesus has loved us we still believe that there is more than we need than the gospel. We still 
believe that God needs more of us, that God needs more of our work and our righteousness, rather than resting in the finished work of Jesus and his righteousness. Have you lost your first love? So often we wrongly believe that the gospel is like elementary school graduation. You ever watch a kindergarten graduation? It's just all for show, right? Yeah, 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 just, just, just get me through that. Get me on to real school. Get me on to the next best thing. And that's how we treat the gospel sometimes, don't we? But the gospel is just the ABCs of Christianity, and let me get to the rest of it now. But listen to what St. Jerome writes about this gospel story. He says the gospel story, imagine it as, as, I'm, as I'm reading this to you. The gospel story is shallow enough for a babe to come and drink without fear of drowning. And it's deep enough for theologians to swim in without ever touching the bottom. Listen to me. The gospel is not something that you graduate from. The gospel is something that keeps teaching you and growing you and transforming you as you teach it and tell it to others. Because as you tell it to others, you recognize I'm just in need of this gospel as much, if not more, than everyone else around me. There's nothing more than the gospel. I just need more of it. There's nothing more than Jesus. I just need more of him. And it's from this love of the gospel that John wants the church in Ephesus to return to so they're not working for love but from love. Paul warned them in Ephesus past. They're getting this warning again in Ephesus future. But let's now see how Paul talks to them and what he talks to them about at present day Ephesus. It's Ephesus present, third point. Paul, do you know where he's writing from? Prison in Rome. He's writing to this, this letter to these people in the city Ephesus, the city where the gospel dramatically changed the culture there. The city where the carved images of Artemis plummeted in their sails. The church where the gospel turned everything upside down. He writes to them, Paul, Ephesians 1, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. There's that word, grace. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul. The same Paul who planted this church, the same Paul who met with the elders, again commends them the word of grace. Grace to you. I'm going to dive more into these three verses next week. Because here's what's going to happen as we dive into this letter. Is that before Paul ever tells the Ephesian church what to do, he tells them what's true. For three straight chapters, there is no instruction of what to do. You know what he does for three straight chapters? Recounts the whole story of God's grace and the gospel in Christ Jesus. So I want to know, why after two years, two years in Ephesus past of declaring the life, death, resurrection of Jesus, does Paul grab the most mature believers and he commends them the gospel of God's grace to them? 
Why is he writing a letter to people who are already Christians, who already know the gospel? Why is he spilling ink for half of his letter about the gospel of Jesus Christ? Do you want to know why? It's because we constantly think there is more offered to us than the gospel. But there is nothing more that you need than the gospel of Jesus Christ. You just need more of Jesus. He knows that you and me, we are tempted to go look for approval elsewhere when he knows and we know that we already have it in the adoption as sons and daughters of God through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1. We need more of the gospel. He knows that we are tempted to go work for the sealing of our salvation, for the securing of our salvation, that we believe, yes, sure, Jesus died for me in the past to save me, but I must secure my salvation. He knows we're tempted to believe that we have to work for our future salvation. And Paul's saying, no, no, in Ephesians chapter 1 and Ephesians 6, no, it's not you who seal your salvation, it is the Holy Spirit who seals your salvation. You don't need more works, you need to rest more in the work of the gospel of Jesus. He knows, church, that you are tempted to go out and try and find quick fixes for your marriages when all you need to do is look at the gospel for what your marriage is meant to represent. Ephesians 5, more of the gospel. He knows that we are tempted toward disunity because of our differences But he says, no, you are one in Christ Jesus. All ethnicities are one in Christ Jesus. Male and female, one in Christ Jesus. All ages, one in Christ Jesus. Bosses, employees, one in Christ Jesus. For we have one Lord, one baptism, one Father, and one Spirit. We don't need anything more than the gospel, he says. We just need more of it. Are you with me? Some of us, including me at times, we look at this gospel of Jesus Christ, that he lived a life that we should have lived, and he died the death that we should have died, and he rose from the grave for our justification. We look at it like a, like a closet door, or a door to a wardrobe, if you will. When we open that wardrobe, we see all these robes. These robes are Christ's righteousness. And we go in and we take a robe off the hanger. It's purchased for us at the expense of Jesus' life. It's freely offered to us. That's why it's called grace. We put it on. And we mistakenly close the door. And we return to our relationships as usual. We return to work as usual. Return to our marriages, our parenting, our classrooms per usual. What we do not realize, what we do not realize is that this is not just any old wardrobe. It seems narrow. It seems small from the outside. It seems like one of many doors that can offer us things in this world. Until you step into and through that closet door. You're like, step into the closet door? What is this, a child's book? 
Yeah. It is. Because unless you have faith like a child, you'll never know that there's more of the gospel for you. Unless you have faith like a child, you won't be re-enchanted by the grace of God. Unless we have faith like a child, we will never recapture the wonder that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This faith, like the youngest of the four Pevensies. Do you guys know the story of the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe? The youngest child, Lucy, who my eldest, Lucy Lewis, is named after. As she was wandering through the professor's house, she found this old wardrobe. And she opened up the door, felt a breeze, and she stepped through it. Faith of that youngest child to know that that wardrobe was bigger, more beautiful, and freeing, and life-giving on the inside than it is on the outside. And this is what Jesus means when he says, the way to the kingdom of heaven is narrow that leads to life. And what Jesus is saying, it seems small on the outside, but it's larger than life on the inside. That wardrobe is bigger on the inside than it is on the outside. And this gospel that Paul is compelling us towards, that I want to be compelled towards, that we need to be compelled towards, is bigger on the inside than it is on the outside. This is the truth. There's nothing more than the gospel. There's just more of it. And what is this gospel message? That God, who is all good, created you and me as good. But we, Ephesians 2, we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked, following after the course of this world and following after the passions of our mind. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, but God. But God being rich in mercy. He's not poor. He's not tight-fisted. He is rich in mercy. Why? Because of the love which with he loved you before you ever loved him. He made you alive together with Christ. It's by grace that you have been saved. And it's not a result of your works. Oh, it is a result of works. Just not yours. It's the work of Jesus and his life, his death, and his resurrection. So that no one can boast in what they do, but they solely can boast in what Jesus has accomplished for them in what he has done when he has come to this earth to die for us, raise for us, and send us his spirit that is now living and active inside of us. You see, this good news of this gospel both tells us the bad news. We were dead, but it also tells us the good news. We are now alive, all because Christ is no longer dead. The grave could not hold him. Death could not contain him. But he rose from the grave, and now he gives us his life-giving spirit. Paul tells us of what our past was like, but he's also telling us what our future is like. Yes, Christ died for us in the past, but in the future, you know what he's going to do? He's going to show us his immeasurable kindness through his grace in Christ Jesus when he returns. And I love the way Jack Miller sums this up. This is what Paul's saying in Ephesians 2. He says, cheer up, 
you are a lot worse off than you think you are. And cheer up. You're also more known, accepted, and loved than you ever hoped or imagined. Both are true because of the gospel. God knows the worst things about you that you don't even know yet. And he still chooses to love you. You know what happens when we rest in this past reality for us and our future reality? It begins to change our present reality. Where Paul says we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God had prepared beforehand so that you and I, we can walk in them. You see, what God is doing right now, what he wants to do for you right now in this new year, is to take a step through the gospel wardrobe. Don't just put on Jesus' robes and walk in the opposite direction, but put on his robes of righteousness and walk into a brand new world. You know what happens when a church catches this reality? You know what this new world looks like? It looks like heaven. As it is in heaven, so be it here on earth. It is a brand new identity as sons and daughters of God that you do not have to achieve, but you simply receive as a gift in Christ Jesus. It's an approval that you do not have to earn or work for. It's an approval that's already yours in Christ that you work from. It's a love where you do not have to convince God to love you. But he's already been compassionate to love you by sending himself in the person and work of Jesus. Amen? Do you know what what this church would look like if we stepped through the wardrobe? I'll tell you what it would look like. It would look like a church where marriages are marked by the gospel of Jesus Christ, where wives would honor and respect their husbands like the church does for Christ, Ephesians 5. And it would look like husbands laying their lives down for their wives, sacrificing them and serving for them. For isn't that how Christ loved us? We need more of the gospel. It's a church that doesn't need to go out on the weekends and get drunk on wine because they know we are filled with the Spirit. It's a church that doesn't need to go out for one night stands, one after another, because we are filled with the indwelling Holy Spirit, God's intimate presence with us, loving us, knowing us, fully understanding us. It's a church where we stop trying to one-up one another where we outdo one another in love. It's a church where we don't consider our interest as most important, where we couldn't consider others' interests as important as our own, for isn't that what Christ has done for us? It's a church where we don't speak ill of one another, but we speak with honor. We speak of people better than they deserve, for it doesn't Christ speak of us better than we deserve. We need more of the gospel. It's a church that recognizes our deepest unity is not in our gender, it's not in our marriage status, it's not in our leadership status, it's not in our political status, it's not in a temporary status. So our unity is 
unified in the blood-bought status of Jesus that exists for all eternity because we have one Lord, one Father, one baptism, and one Spirit. We need more of this gospel. It's a church where it is safe for us to bring our messes into this building and into one another's homes, where it's safe to confess our sins to one another for the safest place for every man and every woman and every child is in the presence of the Lord saying, I have messed up. I have sinned. I've fallen short because you know what's on the other side of that confession? Forgiveness. That when we confess our sins to one another, we would forgive one another just as Christ forgave us. Not based on earning and not based on entitlement. Based solely on the mercy and grace of God. And it's a church. Oh, I want to be this church. Where we don't point our fingers at everyone else and say, you're wrong and we're right. It's a church where we say, come on in. We've all gotten it wrong. But we know the one who has gotten it right. We know the one who has offered us his blood-bought righteousness. And he still welcomes us. Oh, may we never get bored of this gospel. We don't need anything more than it. Just more of it. It's a gospel where a belief in it leads to right behavior. It's a gospel where our doctrine impacts our devotion. It is a gospel that gives us deep convictions that leads to a gospel culture. This is Paul's hope for the church in Ephesus. And this is my hope for us. Not just as we step into 2022, but as long as we live, as long as this church is in existence, we'd be marked both by gospel convictions and gospel culture. Amen. 